every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. Since 2018, the Ocala Police Department responded to over 1,000 overdose incidents, and this has resulted in the deaths of 139 Ocala citizens. The ER use in these zip codes, well, in 32609 was twice the state average, and in 32641 was three times the state average. When the glitch occurred, providers weren't getting paid, so therefore their services kind of had to stop for a while. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Sarah Mandile. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's get into the stories from this week. Since 2018, the Ocala Police Department has responded to over 1,000 overdose incidents, and the opioid crisis continues to take lives across north-central Florida. Producer Ariana Asperu spoke with WUFT reporter Bryce Brown for his story about what local officials and organizations are doing to combat it. So your story dives into the opioid epidemic and its impact on central Florida. Can you give me an overview of how this issue has affected places like Ocala and Marion counties? Yeah, definitely. So when I began reporting on this story, um, it was very important to me to look at this issue of the opioid epidemic locally to see how it's impacting our neighbors. We've seen the opioid crisis being broadcast on national news. It's definitely a hot topic. It's been in shows like Euphoria, which is very mainstream and popular at the moment. So a lot of people know about it, but I think when you focus on the issue and how it's impacting the people that go to the same school as you or that are at your workplace. I think it definitely puts everything into perspective and you realize how important it is to tackle this issue and make real changes. So when I spoke to the Ocala Police Department, they gave me some numbers. And so we saw since 2018, the Ocala Police Department responded to over 1,000 overdose incidents. And this has resulted in the deaths of 139 Ocala citizens. There was a very sharp uptick around the time of the pandemic, and the OPD public information officer, Jeff Walksack, who I spoke to, he noticed this incline. And so we believe the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job, all of those could have been stressors during the pandemic that could have led to this increase in the opioid epidemic. And a lot of what your story reported on is what our local communities in Central Florida are doing to curb these deaths or overdoses in their respective areas. One of those programs was in the Ocala area and called the Heroin Opioid Amnesty Program. Can you tell me a bit about that and what it's meant to do? Yeah, so the Heroin Opioid Amnesty Program was launched in January of 2018 by the Ocala Police Department. And so under this program, anyone that's seeking assistance from the police will not be arrested and they will not be added to any sort of criminal activity list within the police department as long as they surrender all of their drugs and paraphernalia to the department. And then these people who are impacted by opioid addiction, they will be admitted to a licensed treatment facility free of any charge. So this was a new effort to hopefully encourage people to seek help. From this program, we learned that a big issue is how to treat those narcotic episodes. So how do these officers respond to these calls? So when the police department receives calls about an opioid-related incident, they arrive with Narcan, which is a prescription drug that treats emergency narcotic overdoses. 
And this is very important that they always have this on hand because these opioid incidents are occurring almost daily. Paul Bloom, the public information director for the Marion County Sheriff's Office, said that law enforcement, in addition to just finding drugs on the street, finding the people that are dealing these drugs, uh, a big goal that they're focusing on is educating youth about these dangers of opioids in schools. So Bloom also spoke about how a lot of times this addiction begins with painkillers. And when people begin depending on painkillers and they begin using them more and more, when suddenly they can't receive any more painkillers, when they can't get it from the pharmacy or wherever they got them, they sometimes go to greater lengths and they begin to fill that gap with potentially heroin. And so when you go to those greater lengths, when you start using drugs like heroin, that's when the overdoses become a really major threat. So it's very important that the police force have these tools to help treat these overdoses, such as Narcan. And so Marion County also has a program to combat these issues. How does this one work? So the Marion County Heroin Opioid Task Force, that was launched in 2017 with a similar goal to reduce the number of opioid deaths um, across the county. This task force, it combines intelligence units and also directed patrol units. So these intelligence units, they compile information about suspected criminals or criminal activity across the county. And then they give this information to directed patrol units so law enforcement can go out and find these locations where there may be drug deals or criminal activity, they can track it down and track down those individuals, tackling the issue at the site of where it happens, where it begins. Also in your reporting, you spoke to someone in Florida named Marina Sachs. What did they say about how those issues are sometimes handled or mishandled from their experience? Yeah, so Marina Sachs, they have their podcast where they speak to a lot of people who have dealt with alcohol or drug use, and they have spoken to a lot of people that have been afflicted by the opioid epidemic and who struggle with addiction. They opened my eyes to a very important perspective on the issue, and that is how a lot of times the way the opioid epidemic is handled, um, particularly by the government or law enforcement, that may not be the right way to go about it, and that may not be very effective. And Sachs said, A lot of people that they have spoken to who have become sober, they did not do that because of the government. They actually did it in spite of the government. And so they think a real narrative has to be changed in how the government handles these issues. Instead of punishing people for using and abusing opioids, they need to be treated, they need to be encouraged to seek help. So you also spoke to Casey Willie, who leads a Gainesville organization to reduce illicit drug use in the area. Tell me about what they provide in local community to accomplish this. So Casey Willie, they're the director and founder of Out of Harm's Reach. And this organization, it began almost a full year ago. And it educates people about harm reduction and how to help reduce the number of opioid-related deaths or injuries. Um, One really great thing that they do is they provide Narcan training to local restaurants and bars in downtown Gainesville. These spots are actually very popular for incidents to occur because a lot of times people kind of, I mean, if you're out at a bar and drinking, a lot of times people can also abuse opioids in that location as well. So they find it very important to treat restaurant owners, bar owners, Narcan training. So when they spot an overdose, not only that, they are taught how to spot an overdose and then proceed to take action and treat that incident. And overall, this is a very timely story given the increase after the pandemic. How did you initially find the story? 
I found this story. I actually spoke to my professor, Mr. Bob, about what is timely, what story should be tackled. And he actually brought this story idea to me. And as soon as he mentioned it, I knew it was something that I wanted to tackle. I knew it was definitely a timely story. It was an interesting timeline. I had about a week to complete this story. So it was kind of a tight deadline. And for me, I wanted it to get as close to the issue as I possibly could. Um, definitely need the numbers. You need to speak to law enforcement. You need to know how the issue is in our local counties. But I wanted to speak to people that were impacted by the epidemic. And so within that week timeline, I realized that is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to have people speak up about vulnerable issues, whether they knew someone or that they were impacted themselves. But at the very last minute, I was able to get these amazing people to tell their stories. And I think it's really made the story stand out. That was WUFT reporter Bryce Brown speaking with producer Ariana Asperu. You are listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sue Wagner, host of Tell Me About It on WUFT. I speak to leaders, artists, philanthropists, and innovators to learn why and how they do what they do. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. right here on WUFT. Back to the Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Sarah Mandile. Let's move on to our next story. A meeting of the Alachua County Healthcare Advisory Board Mental Health Subcommittee and the Outreach and Case Management Subcommittee revealed a shocking statistic. Emergency room visits are staggeringly high in our area. ER usage is twice the state average in the 32609 zip code and three times the state average in 32641. The reason the committee presented is low-income residents often have to resort to visiting the ER or calling 911 for mental health crises or substance abuse problems that might have otherwise been preventable. Producer Melissa Fato spoke with WUFT reporter Jackie Messia, who attended the meetings about what the committee members recommend as a path to curb reliance on the ER. It was James Reiser, I believe he, he said that they received ER data with the two um, zip codes, 32609 and 32641, and then Alachua County as a whole. And the ER use in these zip codes, well, in 32609 was twice the state average, and in 32641 was three times the state average. And these are really big zip codes. I didn't, we looked at the map of Gainesville, and they take up a lot of the county. But yeah, ER usage in these two zip codes was way higher than the national average, which was interesting. And a lot of it has to do with what, what they said with um, substance abuse and mental health. And they were trying to find ways to kind of separate the two issues. So the people on the subcommittee say that ER usage is so high because of mental health and or substance abuse issues in the area. Um, how did they attempt to detangle both of these issues. So they decided to draft three action items to present to the county. And they decided to draft three action items, um, education, treatment, and follow-up. So targeting schools, raising awareness in schools would be the first, you know, helping children. They mentioned like 
a lot of children are really affected by mental health, especially they mentioned like because of like school shootings and all this, you know, like craziness that goes on in the world, like children have been, you know, affected by mental health pretty severely. And then like treatment, coming up with ways to help people and, you know, treat these people that under traditional mental health, they, a lot of them go unreported because it's not like a substance abuse issue that leads them to the hospital. So a lot of people don't know about ways in Alachua County that they can actually receive help. And one of them they mentioned was peer specialists, which are people with credentials to help, um, who help, who volunteer to help patients would be like a form of treatment. Um, And then follow-up services, Karen Billings, she's an advisory board member and the assistant director of administrative service at the UF Department of Clinical Health and Psychology. Billings said she believes the community needs more than certified peer specialists, just like we have urgent care for centers for physical health, there should be options for mental health treatment. We would place items such as support for a 988 program, which is a nationwide suicide prevention hotline under education, and then mapping mental health services and identifying gaps under treatment. And then, you know, creating programs that just kind of are set up throughout the county to establish relationships and build trust with communities. And a lot of these two zip codes, a lot of people in these poor communities, you know, end up just calling 911 because they felt that their concerns weren't taken seriously by the system. So she said um, that setting up clinics would be an immediate way for people to feel like someone would attend to their crisis. From your reporting, it seems like there's two major um, populations that are really affected by this issue of having to resort to 911 or visiting the ER um, because of crises and that is children and low-income people. So what did the committee say about the biggest challenges that face these communities? Yeah, so, I mean, the first is that they mentioned was people dealing with traditional mental health issues are undercounted in the data because of the limited resources and interaction with law enforcement. And um, so people don't know about resources besides like the ER. So that was one concern they wanted to, you know, promote um, more resources. Um, They suggested setting up clinics throughout the county and just to really build trust with the communities because a lot of um, people in these low income communities have felt historically that their concerns haven't been taken seriously. And um, especially with the stigma around mental health, there's Ali Martinez, she said that this stigma is a huge issue. Mental illness is a label and that label repulses people. She said, I think education and cutting through that stigma in a culturally relevant way is going to solve a lot of these problems. So yeah, these social and cultural issues that deters residents from seeking treatment for mental health concerns is probably the biggest thing. And yeah, children, you know, educating the, not only the children, but the families and the teachers at these schools, you know, these, a lot of kids feel that they can't go seek help because they don't know what to do. And going back to the stigma around mental health, you know, it's it's a really big issue. It's what they were really concerned about. Did either of the committees address at all sort of the um, strain that it puts on the emergency room system by having people go to the emergency room for, or calling 911 for issues that can't necessarily be solved yeah, by so- calling 911? Yeah, a lot of these people call the ER, call 911, show up to the ER, and, you know, they 
receive just temporary help is what they were saying. Like th there's no follow-up. They go, and a lot of it is due to substance abuse, which is another issue that they were trying to decide whether to tackle that separately than mental health. Um, but yeah, they, they go into the ER and that's because that's the only place they know where to go and they don't receive help that's permanent or lasting and they just kind of are let go. And then to deal with their problems, there's no, there's no follow-up treatment. We can see that there's some resources that are missing in Alachua mm -hmm. County and that's why people are turning to these methods of trying to find help. Um, yeah. What are some of the solutions that are being proposed? I know you touched, you touched on them earlier. Adding clinics around the county, setting up clinics around the county. And Ali Martinez mentioned it. She's like, even if it's just, you know, from 5 to 8 p.m. on a Tuesday, like once a week, you know, just something that's there for people to be able to, you know, connect with people and, you know, actually build a connection and a relationship. Um, that was a main concern, reaching out to the schools and yeah, kind of kind of promoting programs like I know they mentioned Meridian is one of them, just raising more awareness to programs that people may not know about. There's a lot of barriers, they said, to getting help. And the main one is the main the two main ones are cost and the availability of providers. So they want to, you know, increase providers. And that's one way is to bring in um peer specialists that are people with credentials who volunteer to help patients and offer follow-up services. And these are people, they have to take a course and they don't, a lot of people don't know what a peer specialist is, but these are, you know, a, a lot like cost-effective ways to give people help and follow-up treatment. James Reiser mentioned, he said in the surveys administered, the, the communities in zip codes 32609 and 32640 ranked certified peer specialists at the bottom of the list of needed mental health services. But, and they ranked like psychiatrists like at the top of the list is what he said. And people don't realize that that's very expensive and the cost is a very big concern. Um, so yeah, certified peer specialists would be a much more cost-effective way for heavy users of the ER who may not be aware of other resources. That was WUFT's Jackie Messia talking with producer Melissa Fato. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. Tell Me About It is about the very people who touch the heart of North Central Florida. I'm your host, Sue Wagner, and each week we talk to those who work to elevate the quality of life in our area. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. here on WUFT. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host, Sarah Mandile. We've reached our last story for today. For nearly three months, Florida failed to pay tens of thousands of health care claims for the sickest and neediest children because of software glitches. Producer Malia Leiden spoke with Fresh Take Florida's Kristen Bausch about this issue and the effect it had on families relying on Medicaid-paid health providers. There was actually... A story tip that came from another reporter, Katie Heisen, and this tip was stemmed from a blog post from the Bard Owl Press, um, and it was written by a former Politico health journalist. Her name was Alexandra Glorioso, and she 
had contacted several parents and health providers across the state who were experiencing this before it became a bigger issue. So like before there was a deadline to fix things. And so we wanted to look into it a little bit further because we knew there was more to it. We wanted to get word from the companies themselves and kind of just incorporate more voices into it. So her reporting really kicked off the ability to even further report these families like narratives and these providers narratives and just get more information overall about the situation. Can you take me through your reporting process and some of the information that you learned? We started out by reaching out to Sunshine Health, which merged with WellCare. And the merge itself is basically what the issue was with this. So there was some like system glitch that basically when the glitch occurred, providers weren't getting paid. So therefore their services kind of had to stop for a while for these really sick children, like children with autism, children who needed pretty intensive care. And it wasn't the providers being like, we want to kick you out. It's because they, some of them couldn't even keep their doors open because they weren't getting paid. And so we started by reaching out to Sunshine Health and we asked them like, hey, like what was the situation? We also reached out to the agency for healthcare administration, which is also known as ACA. And we started with what they had to say about what happened with the glitch. And then we also reached out to providers across the state. There was one from Gainesville and one from Ocala. And then we also reached out to some parents. So we kind of wanted a broad scope of just perspectives because everyone was affected on a different level. Who were some of the people you talked to? And can you take me through some of their experiences and perspectives? Dan Miller, he is from Lake Worth, Florida, and he has a 17-year-old son with autism. He was one of the families impacted by the system glitch. His provider, Blessing Hands, they had to stop giving his child services because of this glitch, because they weren't getting paid. And his situation was really hard because he does like personal electrical contracting work. So all the jobs that he had were not through a company. Like these were things he was taking on himself. And because he had to be the primary caregiver for his son during this time, which was three months of people not getting paid. So it was three months of him sacrificing the jobs that he would have been taking on. He even said, like, if it weren't for Wells Fargo working with him, he would have lost his house. And, you know, he's a single father taking care of his son. So there's a lot of financial hardship, but also some added stress that wasn't really anticipated. And the same went for Anne-Marie Sasong. She has a 15-year-old son who also has autism, and she was taking nursing classes and work study, um, I think in the same field. And she had to completely drop that for a while too, because her provider was unable to keep her doors open. And she mentioned kind of these struggles where she was, you know, a five foot woman um, and her son's 15 and the normal caregiver would be doing like bathing and eating and just walking like behavioral things. Some of the things that she couldn't take on by herself And so she said it was just really challenging for her because it was just a lot of unnecessary stress. And then her provider, who's also in the story, Lisette, she was doing this for 26 years. She even said 
in the 26 years of being open, she never thought she would have to close her doors, but she wasn't financially capable of staying open because of the system glitch. And it was really hard for her because, you know, Sunshine said that they were aware of this issue in December, but she said she was calling since October, September, and no one was addressing her concerns. She said she was on hold for eight hours once, and then she just couldn't get through or couldn't get any answers. And I think she knew it would cause hardships for the parents, and that's why it was so hard for her. And luckily, she is open back up again because, you know, her claims were filed and she finally got paid. But she kind of said it was just so hard to leave these kids behind who she had been working with for five, six years. And what was Sunshine State Health Plan's perspective on what happened and how have they been moving forward? The executives at Sunshine State, they basically said that the payments glitches stem from the company's merge with WellCare. And when they were transferring over that data, like just some of it didn't get transferred correctly or just wasn't completely filed. The merge took place on October 1st of last year, and then they said they weren't really aware of these issues until December, but they set a date of January 31st that everything would be reprocessed. And so they started, you know, slowly filing grievances, reaching out to providers and parents to assure that everything was fixed. Um, They don't necessarily blame it on an employee. They kind of just say it was because of this glitch that things happened. And as far as I know, even after the story, Dan Miller, he said that Sunshine finally reached out to him and like approved his son, Levette Gully. She's back in operation. Um, But I do know that there are also providers who even reached out after this story and said that, you know, they still haven't been paid and they're not really sure when they've been paid or communication hasn't been good. So I think Sunshine Health is aware of everything that's happening Um, and that January 31st date was something they set so I think they're in the process of reprocessing everything but they basically said it was because of this glitch that occurred. And what would you say is the significance or biggest takeaway people should have from your story? So I think upon first glance you know, you're like, okay, there's two healthcare companies, large companies, billion dollar companies that just had a system glitch. Like, what does that mean? But when you really humanize it and see that there are families being affected by this, providers being affected by this, you know, people that are under the providers, the caregivers, these were all people relying on not only care, but jobs and and income and just being able to stay in business. But really it's about the families and they didn't ask for this situation. I think the key takeaway is that what may look like a small issue might be affecting hundreds or thousands of families. When you kind of try to put yourself in their position, you understand that it's a situation that wasn't asked for and isn't really fair to these families. Is there anything else you'd like to add or feel people should know about? The families don't blame their providers for having to close down or having to stop giving services because they knew it wasn't on them firsthand. And so I think it was just really frustrating on their part because while they're trying to save the business aspect of things, they have very vulnerable families on the other side who are just trying to get like everyday help. 
That was Fresh Take Florida's Kristen Bausch speaking with producer Malia Leiden. If passed, the legislation would go into effect July 1st of this year. from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Asperu, Malia Leiden, Melissa Fato, and Sarah Mandile. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Sarah Mandile. Thanks for listening.